0: hello and welcome to all Indians matter I'm Ashraf engineer. as the Delhi High Court heard petitions challenging the exception to section three hundred and seventy five of the Indian Penal Code, which exempts spouses from being prosecuted for rape within marriage, it sparked a heated debate within social, political and legal circles. the so called marital rape exemption has put the focus on consent and state control over women's sexual autonomy. it's a complex legal issue and an emotionally charged one. We are seeing this not just in the court arguments but also in media discussions and on social media. Those against it cite men's rights, the potential for misuse of a law criminalizing marital rape and the impact on Indian society. At the centre of all this is Exception 2 to Section 375 which states that any sexual act performed by a man on his wife is not rape so long as the wife is not a minor. What is the case and debate all about and why are we debating in 2022 whether a woman has the right over her own body or to refuse sex if she doesn't want it? So what if the person demanding it is her husband?
1: All Indians matter.
0: Advocate Audrey DeMello has been working since 2006 at Muchless, a team of women lawyers and social workers that provide social and legal support to women and children victims of sexual and domestic violence. She is currently the director there. She heads Majlis's comprehensive programs on gender and law, which involves legal representation and social support of women and children in cases of sexual and domestic violence. It also involves legal rights training and campaigns for policy-level interventions with a specific focus to help marginalized women and children access justice. She has helped evolve a number of collaborations with the government to ensure effective implementation of laws. Welcome, Audrey.
1: Hi, Ashraf. Thank you for having me here.
0: You're very welcome, Audrey. Audrey, could you explain what the law says about marital rape, especially Exception 2 to Section 375?
1: So, as you know, rape is a act of non-consensual sex with another person against her consent. This is the known definition of rape, and it has evolved over the years where the whole definition of the pino-vaginal rape has extended to other kind of facts which are made out to women and children. 2013 was a very big year for some of these amendments to come. But we continue to have an exception, which is the exception two. Exception two very clearly talks about the fact that this definition does not include those who are married women who are over the age of 18. The exception two is actually saying that if you are a married woman over the age of 18, then you cannot file a case against your husband under the section 375, which is rape.
0: Right. So, if a man rapes his wife, does she have no legal recourse? And what about her right to say no?
1: So, that is a misconception. I think there lies the misconception and the confusion because there is this exception. The vice versa doesn't work, which is a man can rape his wife. And I'm saying this not just because we have enough laws to address this, but also because our constitution, Article 14, Article 15, right to life, right to live a life of dignity, we get all Indian citizens get their rights from the constitution. And the constitution does not permit any act of violence on anyone. So Firstly, I mean, we have to appreciate and respect the fact that our constitution has given us the right. And I think over and above that, you know, we get it even from superior, it's just by being humans, that no human being can commit any act of violence on another. And I think women especially and wives more so have to ingrain this thought of right to life within them. I think somewhere they have the right, but it's not ingrained in them. So every time, especially when it comes to family members, close family members, there is a belief that certain people can be violent on certain people and that's okay. And it comes from a notion of love. So it starts really very young where we see children being beaten by their parents. And it's a very acceptable notion, right? I'm beating you out of love. And then when you get married, the extension is, you know, it extends to that where it says, Your husband beats you because he loves you. And, you know, if your husband doesn't beat you, then who will beat you, kind of notion. And so, women, children, families, patriarchy has ensured that we believe that it's okay to be beaten by someone, you know, both as children and then as we grow up as wives. If you look at law, I think we have made tremendous changes in law because not because we didn't have the right but more so because it needed to be articulated. So, I don't know if you remember, but it was 1983. 1980s was a big time for violence against women was at its peak, especially what we called, quote-unquote, dowry violence, right? Women were dying in their homes. And what was the cause? It was because of dowry. To address this issue in 1983, Parliament actually introduced a section in the Indian Penal Code, called Section 498A. Now, what is 498A? 498A is a law and the title of that law is Cruelty to Wives. And it actually describes and goes on to say that if any man commits any physical or emotional violence against his wife, then that would amount to cruelty and it is punishable by three years. Now, let me take this definition further for you and say, what is physical cruelty? So we have restricted in our mind that to believe that physical cruelty is beating, you know, physically beating another person. But if somebody is forcing themselves on another person, wouldn't that be physical cruelty? And so it is very well described and has protected wives with this section that is meant to address all kinds of cruelty.
0: Sure, if I'm understanding you right, what you're saying is the exception two to section 375 is not only not in line with the constitution, but it will also be contradictory to other laws. Have I got that right?
1: Absolutely. And it's important to understand that to believe that because there is an exception in one place, which is the rape law, that it is okay to rape your wife, that does not hold true because the section 498A very clearly describes that any violence, any cruelty, to a wife, will be addressed in this section. And it warrants a three-year punishment.
0: Right. Already over the years, especially after the Nirbhaya case, we've had rape law becoming more stringent. However, marital rape is not covered, or is at least seen to be not covered by them. You already explained how it is, actually. So what is your reaction to that?
1: So I think is that marriage and, and violence within marriage is a broad spectrum. There is no husband who only rapes his wife, but doesn't beat her, doesn't not give her food, doesn't allow her to reside in the home, doesn't deprive his children, doesn't provide maintenance. It's a continuum of violence, as we call it, right? It's not like there's only one act of violence been happening on this woman. What we are struggling with is that how do you equate these different violence and how do you differentiate when it is sexual violence with wives to include it in the rape law and that is where everyone is struggling i mean even the delhi high court is struggling even the government is struggling because quote-unquote in a way rape is looked at it comes from a very patriarchal and traditional notion that you are raped by a stranger you are raped by an outsider that was the belief You know, the notion starts with my wife is my property. The women in my house are my property of the men in the home. And when another man rapes the woman of our home, then it is a violation of our honor. And hence it became a crime. Right? To address that, it became a crime. And that's why the definition was what it was. But over the years, it has been understood that there are more rapes happening by known people. Literally, not even when I'm saying known people, I'm not even talking about broadly known. They are close family members.
0: That's right. And there are so many studies that uh, validate what you're saying.
1: Yes. And I'm talking about fathers. I'm talking about brothers. I'm talking about people in the neighborhood, uncles, grandfathers. You name those close relationships. And rape is happening by close members. In fact, the stranger rape, is literally as low as 9%. That means 91% women and children are being raped by people they know.
0: What do you make of the argument that a law against marital rape could be misused in the form of false allegations?
1: I don't know how to respond to that. It offends me to a great extent, both as a practicing lawyer, as a women's rights activist, as a feminist myself, that it's so convenient that while all laws have a potential of being misused. When it comes to any law favoring women, then the whole tulaboo about women misusing the law gets so much of attention, is given so much of validation, it is discussed so much. I mean, you name which law is not misused, whether it's financial laws, whether it's banking laws, whether it's other criminal sections, which law is not misused? But does it warrant This kind of attention that almost, you know, people feel it's okay to say that, you know, they quote any numbers. You will hear judges saying 98% of the law of women misuse the law. You will hear police officers saying that. In my practice of literally 15 years, I have never come across a what you call quote-unquote fake case or a misuse case. And then I began to understand what they mean. What they mean is actually, how dare do you use the law? How did you dare to make a complaint against your family member? How did you walk across to that police station and file a case? You know, the use of the law is in fact misuse according to them.
0: What do you make of the government's argument that India shouldn't, quote, blindly follow Western countries? And in the past, it has said that it would, again, quote, unquote, destabilize the institution of marriage. Also, Minister of Child and Women Development, Smithy Irani said, and I quote, to condemn every marriage in this country as a violent marriage and to condemn every man in this country as a rapist is not advisable. Now, I thought this was a strange statement because no one is trying to do that.
1: Absolutely. All due respect to husbands who do not violate their wives. And I hope that there are enough number of them. I don't think this law is trying to condemn all men, you know, It's just such a bizarre statement coming from the Department of Women and Child, coming from the minister herself to believe, which then goes on to show that, you know, how we perceive marriage. And I think there lies our problem. You know, we're very Western in everything possible. I mean, our current government is just like, you know, going all out to copy Western culture. But somehow, when we are talking about marriage, we are the most regressive. And I want to say to her and to every viewer that the moment you have violated your wife, you have desecrated the institution of marriage. There is no marriage. So let's not fool ourselves that by not addressing the issue we are saving marriage, the marriage was violated the moment you abused her. So don't put it on her when she is asking for her rights.
0: There's also the argument that, uh, and this is a legal argument that I read somewhere, I was quite surprised by it. There's also the argument that the court cannot formally remove the exemption from the statute because that is parliament's job. So if the court does declare it unconstitutional, parliament may be coaxed into amending the law, but it's not bound to do so. Is that correct argument?
1: So definitely. See, we must understand that we have three pillars of law, the judiciary, the executive and the parliament. So, the role of parliament is to make law because they represent the people of the country and they're representative of the views of the country. So, making law is the power of parliament. The job of the court, on the other hand, is to interpret law, is to articulate and to flesh out the vision or the thought behind the law, you know, because there was an idea when the law was made or there was a notion when the law was made and is it being interpreted in the right way is the work of the judiciary. Judiciary cannot make new law. So that is what the court is trying to say is that if we delete this exception, are we creating a new law? And the answer to that, I mean, the court should understand. For example, I'll give you an example. When earlier this exemption used to say Not if the wife was above 15 years of age.
0: Yeah, I think the Supreme Court uh, said that.
1: Right? That got amended in 2018 to become 18 years of age. Now, how did that happen? Because there was a PIL file which kind of brought this contradiction into perspective because age of marriage is 18, right? And if child marriage very clearly shows you that if age of marriage is 18, And the POCSO, which is the Protection of Children from Sexual Offenses Act, says that any act of any sexual offense against a child up to the age of 18 would be under the POCSO Act. It brought a lot of clarity. So the court, by by increasing that age from 15 to 18, was not creating new law.
0: Some have also argued that uh, consent is inherent once you're married and there is the quote-unquote expectation of conjugal relationship. How do you react to that?
1: Yeah, I think they're good to kind of actually just think about them. So I get what you're saying. And, you know, the whole idea of marriage comes way back from culture and religion as the reason to procreate. Right. You know, your heirs, etc., come from this idea that it is about procreation and about taking the next generation. So. To that extent, that was one of the obligations of marriage. But marriage in Quran has been interpreted in so many ways, in Hindu shastras, has been interpreted in so many ways as companionship, as, you know, marriage is so much more than just an agreement to have sex. It may be a subtle agreement that, you know, we are together and procreation is one of the aspects of many religions. But violent sex? No, never. And that cannot be argued anywhere. Violence in any form, no, never. And that cannot be a reason to save a marriage. That cannot be a reason to keep marriage as an institution. If that is the basis, that to save marriage, you have to tolerate violence or it's okay to be violent, then this institution does not deserve to exist.
0: Absolutely. What is your view about consent being described as a quote-unquote slippery slope? It's been pointed out that many women simply agree to sex despite not wanting it because they are in a marriage, it's the way they have been conditioned, etc. And therefore, is that lack of consent or not? The position of the government is that once a woman is married, consent is presumed and continuous, implying that consent does not need to be negotiated before each marital sexual encounter. How do you react to that?
1: So I don't know if the government is saying this. I'm not sure whose quote was that. But definitely these are arguments that people put for. And this whole argument of consent is not restricted to marriage. I think the argument of consent has been kind of on all cases because, you know, women are always considered to be liars. I mean, we saw in this whole campaign, uh, in the Me Too campaign, where It was just presumed that, you know, oh, these women are waking up after so long and, you know, they're out to bring down these powerful men or, you know, it's continuously, the notion comes from that. Women use sex as a tool and they're not able to bring clarity about consent and that's why consent is a slippery slope. I have young daughters who I continuously interact with and I think they're so clear about consent. They don't have any misconception about themselves. And what they say, and what even I would say, is that just think of how women are raised. I mean, in your own homes, your own sisters, your own daughters. We are not conditioned to be able to kind of articulate this kind of clarity to say that no, you know, to say no in that manner. And how do we raise our girls? There is such less discussion about sex in our own home, you know, bad, violent sex, but even good, pleasurable sex. Nobody discusses sex at all, right? And then you are in this encounter, whether it's in marriage or out of marriage, and you are uncomfortable, but you do not have the words to articulate it because you were never thought those, you know? I remember instances where somebody was being, you know, almost molesting you in a bus, which is an experience of every girl I know, every single girl I know. And we don't, very rarely will you have one-off person raising their voice against it. What is our best reaction? We will turn, we will adjust our dupattas, we will adjust our back to protect ourselves and we will move on. Because we are not taught to kind of stand up to this kind of sexual violence or any sexual encounters.
0: Also, in such cases, it's it's almost as if the onus is on the woman rather than the perpetrator of the crime itself, which is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you really said that right. It's just tiring the amount of onus put on women. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you say no? Why didn't you stand up? And, you know, I actually had a discussion in my office, which is full of very young girls. And we spoke about, you know, where one of them was talking about what should one do when one is in a situation? And my advice to them was, your life is more important than anything else. So do not try to kind of defend your honor to the extent where you know, you are putting yourself at risk, you're putting your life at risk. What is more important is to get out of that situation because you don't know how that is going to turn. Your refusal, your, you know, trying to stop it, you don't know how that's going to turn out. So to expect women to be able to, you know, give consent in the manner that people are expecting is not, the owner should not be on them and there has to be continuous checking off consent at various times.
0: Absolutely. I want to share some data with the listeners. The latest round of the National Family Health Survey or NFHS-5 says more than 24% of Indian women report facing either domestic or sexual violence. And this is likely to be an underestimate because so much of it goes unreported. And 5.4% of women say they have been forced into sex by their husbands More than 27.4% reported being physically abused. While in percentage terms, if you look at the smallest number, which is 5.4%, while in percentage terms, it might seem small. In absolute numbers, it's very large. And like I said, actually, usually marital rape is not reported. So it wouldn't have been counted in this case. How do you react to this data?
1: So I can just speak from my experience and uh, tell you that a lot of women speak about sexual violence in their lives. But while they're speaking about sexual violence, they're talking about the continuous violence that they're facing. And today, like not, I wouldn't even say 10 years ago this was true, but today there is an acceptance to speak about physical violence. So a lot more women are talking about physical violence. Of course, they still don't believe emotional violence is violence. They don't believe verbal violence is violence. And they definitely don't believe sexual violence is violence, right? But at least they start the conversation with physical violence. And when you dig deeper, you know, the stories that they have to share is just inhuman. Because the kind of violence they put up with. And the reason that they put up with this violence is because they have no option. They really don't have any option. They are married off. They are told by their family that when they are married off, this is your home. And there is no way out of this. You have to make it work. If they want to leave, they're not accepted by their family members back because there is no space for them and their children. So they're sent back time and again, even though they're complaining about being physically abused, being sexually abused, not being maintained, not being given food. It just continues. But in spite of that, they are sent back because there is no space for them in their family. And it is only... And literally, I can really tell you that the maximum number of cases, they come out only when they are deprived in terms of they're actually put out of their homes or they are not given maintenance and they and their children are starving. That's the time they can't take it anymore. There is nothing to do further because they're on the street. And that is when they come up and say, I want to do something. And that is when then you hear all the stories that have happened and that they have, you know, tolerated and accepted over all these years. So I think that, you know, while I agree with people about, you know, the removing if the exception or not removing the exception, I think this is a bigger issue at stake. It is a bigger issue that we need to deal with that where what is available to wives who are going through so much of violence with their husbands and The police do not want to register such cases because they believe that this is a family matter. And when it comes to court, court is delaying these matters and they do not think that these are priority. Because anyway, like I said, the whole misconception is that, you know, women should not be here, should not be making complaints against their family. So in a way, we need to look at this whole issue of marriage and violence in marriage in a different perspective. And that is something that I am very keen to be discussing because whether it's included in rape or, you know, whether the exception continues is a theoretical issue. But how do we deal with this whole issue of violence in marriage, which is continuous which is horrendous and which is depriving women and their children, which is your next generation, to be seeing this kind of violence in their homes.
0: Audrey, you work with many women who've experienced domestic and sexual abuse. How does marital rape impact a woman's long-term physical and mental health?
1: I think I'll not speak only about marital rape, but I'll speak about rape in general. Many young people who are raped by close family members as children, carry the guilt and shame literally for the rest of their lives. And this is true, especially when it is close family members, because they did not address the issue. They did not come out in the right time. If they came out at the right time, then the whole family got disintegrated because they reported. So they carry a lot of guilt, shame, blame themselves for everything that has happened. When it comes to marital rape, like I said, the conditioning of married women is that accept all violence. He is committing this violence because he loves you and accept this violence you know, ho But they continue accepting this, going through this all their lives only because they don't have an option. So it is not only marital rape, but there is an acceptance of all violence to the extent that a lot of people tell me that we need to teach women what is violence because they don't even think this is violence.
0: Yeah. What impact does it have on the rest of the family, the entire family, especially the children?
1: I don't know if you remember the Shakti Mills case. Yeah, I do. And some of the boys in the Shakti Mills case were very young boys. I mean, all of them were young. Some of them were even under 18. When we went when one kind of dig deeper because the media's attention on this case was so high, what came out was each of these boys grew up in domestic violence situations. Being, living in the conditions they did, you know, rape by their fathers, on their mothers was something that they observed daily. It was very normalized. And that says something about our families, right, of the families that we live in, because this act of rape that they did on this young journalist was very normalized in where they were raised. And and these are not new stories. I have continuously heard stories where husbands are very, very sexually abusive to their wives, will demand sex in front of the children, will be abusive in that sexual act. And they don't really care because there is a whole situation of this violence perpetrating in the home. So everything is acceptable. There's no like line.
0: I just wanted to inform listeners, uh, since you mentioned the Shakti Mills case, for those of you who don't know, I think it was 2013 when a photojournalist was uh, raped by five people. And I think, as you mentioned, Audrey, most of them were very young and one was actually a juvenile. And uh, I think at least two or maybe three of them were repeat offenders because uh, when the case came to light, I think there was at least one other woman who came out in the open and said she too had been gang raped there. And it was a particularly violent uh, case. I just wanted to tell listeners that for those who didn't know. Audrey, there used to be a silence around marital rape. Why is it important to bring this issue into the open?
1: I think it's really important. And this case itself is very important because I don't know what will be the outcome of this case, whether the judges will take a stand whether they will delete the exception or will they send it back to Parliament. I think today uh, they announced that uh, the judges have given Parliament two weeks because Parliament had said that we need to take a holistic view. I don't know what they mean by holistic view because, you know, I don't know in two weeks what they're going to do. But what the judges have told Parliament is that you need to come back with an answer. How are you going to deal with this? And I think that these discussions push the boundaries of law. It's literally pushed the judges themselves to kind of think and imagine how do we deal with this issue? I mean, theoretically, everyone knows this is wrong, right? But legally, how do we enforce it? And how do we ensure that by enforcing it, we are addressing the issue and not creating another issue? And I think that's where the judges are struggling with. And even the government may have to take into account whether. Marriage means that violence is accepted, especially sexual violence is okay because rape is only about violence. Where there is consent, there is no problem. The problem comes is when it is violated. For example, we have a section 376b under the rape law which says that if a man is separated from his wife and he commits an act of rape, then that is rape and that warrants three years punishment, not seven years like the general rape law but three years, right? And it does not define that this couple has to be legally separated. It only says separation, right? So that clause literally pushed the boundary of law, right? It said that if you are separated, then if he forces himself on you, then it's a crime, right? So there are various options before the court to push the boundaries of law and to interpret it because for me, the biggest challenge was how many people You know, and I've had feminists and I have had journalists who call me and say that, you know, this law ensures that men can rape their wives. So at least if nothing else, the clarity that no, you cannot rape your wife. And if there is one thing your viewers kind of should integrate is that no, our country does not allow you to rape your wife. If you rape your wife, it is a crime. It may not be a crime under 375 but it is definitely a crime under Section
0: 498A. Right. So this is a critical point, Audrey, and I want all listeners to pay particular attention to that. I also read, uh, Audrey, that uh, if marital rape is criminalized under law, then such a law would be nearly impossible to implement. There are various reasons, like, you know, like you said, conditioning, societal taboos, etc., etc., etc. How do you react to that?
1: Not at all. A big country like ours, which has such a wide implementation machinery, both at the police and at the judicial level. We are implementing, I think, 500 odd sections of the IPC. This would be one more section to implement. And I don't see where the problem is. Exactly. The whole idea is that we need to stop violence against women and we need to do everything we can to make it happen.
0: Absolutely. Audrey, there is no doubt in any rational mind that we cannot keep giving legality to marital rape. It's inhuman, it's primitive and has absolutely no place in society. Do you find it ironic that we are still debating it in 2022? Shouldn't this debate have ended decades ago?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, in India, we got some laws for women very easy. And there are some laws that we have had to struggle and fight and you know the war never ends for example we got abortion law very easily whereas women in america are still struggling and there is a fear that that right to abortion may be taken away from them because we are such a large country and we needed to control the population we got the abortion laws on a platter right so i agree with you and i think that even though women constitute half the population We are literally half of the citizens of this country. Somewhere there is a notion that women are of lesser being, even though the constitution gives us equal rights. And we're not that important, especially when it comes to violence in the families, to be addressed. It just comes from that. Even though we get laws, the moment we get the law, then we are struggling for the implementation. And then we are asking for new laws. And then we are struggling for the implementation. So I think for me, what is critical is not so much as law, as parliament putting their money where their mouth is, creating institutions, sustainable procedures, sensitive implementation agencies like the police and the judiciary to be able to respond to violence against women in its true form, to be able to understand that we have zero tolerance to violence against women. And that is the need of the art. Not that we create new laws because it costs the government nothing to introduce a new law. You make new laws and then nothing changes on the ground. So what we need is for things to change on the ground and we need money and resources to make that change. To be able to respond with an attitude that I have zero tolerance to violence against women. We are not. We are far from there.
0: That's right. Audrey, tell us about Majlis and what it does.
1: So Majlis is an interesting name. I'm sure you think you must be wondering why we're called Majlis. Just to explain to your viewers, the name Majlis comes from, it's there in many Hindustani languages. It means to sit together and resolve a problem. You know, Majlis, Bithana, Matlab, you sit together and try to resolve a problem. We started in 1991 and we work on violence against women and children. Uh, We are a team of women lawyers. We are actually, it's quite interesting because we are actually a team of all women lawyers and social workers. So no men working in our organization, but just not so much as to say that we are against men. We are not against men, but we try to create opportunities for women to be able to do this work for other women. And that's the whole purpose. We represent women in cases of rape. We represent women in cases of domestic violence, and we provide what we call rehabilitation support, because we believe that the legal battle is one battle, but rehabilitation, so that she can reintegrate back and live a life of dignity, is more important. Otherwise, whatever gains she gets legally will have no value in her real life. So. Kind of creating that balance to have a holistic approach is what we do. Uh, We work in Bombay and uh, we do a lot of policy level intervention. We do a lot of training of judiciary, of police to kind of ensure that every time there is a new law or an interpretation of the law, how do we take it down to the last mile so that, you know, when the people who are interacting, the first point of contact, whether it's police officer, whether it's judiciary, they understand this law. So a lot of trickle-down is what we try to do through our work.
0: So Audrey, here's a question I ask all my guests at the end of the conversation. Why do you do this work?
1: So this organization actually was started by my mother, who was a victim of domestic violence herself. And she took a lot of very difficult decisions way back when domestic violence was not even addressed as an issue, forget marital rape. And she started this organization as a support to women. And this is my way of giving back to everything that I got when we were going through our situation is to be able to do this for women. That's why I do this. And to make this world a safer place for our children. That's why I do.
0: Absolutely. Audrey, it's clear that modern society cannot continue to sustain on the basis of 17th century legal principles that regarded women almost as the property of the husband with no decision-making power or autonomy. Thanks so much for your insights into this divisive but important issue.
1: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And I just want to tell your viewers that if there is one thing I would ask them to do, is believe women and support women to be able to address violence against them so that we can have a world free of violence.
0: Thank you all for listening. Please visit AllIndiansMatter.in that's a w l i n d i a n s m a w t e r dot for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer that's A-S-H-R-A-F-E-N-G-I-N-W-E-R and All Indians Count that's a w l i n d i a n s c o u n t. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at AllIndiansMatter.in. Catch you again soon.